So we made it all the way in four weeks through 14 verses. It's been a breakneck pace, but uh, everybody is still surviving. Because we found that verses 3 through 14 in the original Greek are one long verse. The longest verse in the Bible with complete disregard for punctuation and any type of grammatical correctness. But Paul overwhelms us through verse 14 with the reality of what we have in Jesus. We can tell that the Ephesians were wondering what's so great about belonging to Jesus? What's so great about being a Christian? They were looking around them looking at people who were pursuing pleasure at any cost and seeming to find it, and we're asking, what's so great about what we have? And Paul says, well, let me tell you. Boom, and he goes off, verses three through 14. And then we switch gears when he gets to verse 15. It's very interesting. This is the first fill-in on your outline because after Paul talks to the Ephesians about the Lord, Paul talks to the Lord about the Ephesians. And Paul models something very, very powerful for us here. So often in life, we're doing ministry. You're doing ministry in the workplace, ministry with your neighbors, ministry with your friends, just talking to them about life situations. And there's so much power in when you've been talking to someone about the Lord in walking away and talking to the Lord about them and inviting God into the situation. There's a peace that enters the situation, and without it, the loop just doesn't seem closed. Maybe you've been in one of those situations where you're thinking, oh, if I could just make him see, if I could just make her see, and you walk away frustrated. In those moments, step away. Don't try and calm yourself down. Invite God into the situation. We don't need to count to five, we need to invite God in because scripture says we wrestle against principalities and powers. Scripture says some of the tension in our life is spiritual. It's not just a case of our emotions getting out of control, but we have a real enemy who wants tension in our homes, in our marriages, in our workplaces, in our friendships. And there's such power in walking away after you've spoken to someone about the Lord than speaking to the Lord about that person. It's almost formulaic in my marriage. I can just tell you that. There are times when we're frustrated and it's just a communication breakdown. We just can't seem to get past it. I'll I'll usually go walk and pray. And when I say formulaic, I'm waiting for my wife to just say, I'll be waiting by the phone when you call and apologize in two minutes. Because it's like clockwork. It, It really is. And the awful thing about the Holy Spirit is that he always wants to talk about you. Always, I don't know if you've noticed this, he always wants to talk about you. I can go out so many times when I'm frustrated and if I'm in the wrong, it's all he wants to talk about. Doesn't want to talk about the other person. I can try to tell him, no, no, we're not talking about me, we're talking about them. We're talking about them, you need to listen, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit says, no, I want to talk about you. It happens so often. But then there are times when you're trying to share with someone who genuinely needs to hear what God has to say to them. And in those moments when they don't receive it, it can be so frustrating. But man, there is a peace when you walk away and say, God, would you enter the situation? Would you enter it? Because it's a reminder that what they really need is to hear from God. They don't need that amazing word that you have. They really need to hear from God. So Paul models a powerful, powerful ministry principle here. 
And as we'll see in today's study, starting in verse 15, it becomes a prayer. This is Paul's prayer, not to the Ephesians, but for the Ephesians. This is Paul talking to the Lord about the Ephesians. And there's three parts in his prayer. And that first part is simply thanksgiving. Verses 15 and 16 is a time of thanksgiving. And here's what Paul says. Paul says, Therefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul is thankful to God for the Ephesians because they are displaying behaviors that show that they're really walking with Jesus. There's some things they still need to get. Paul wants them to understand what they really have in God, but he says, man, I've heard about your faith. I've heard about your love for the saints. And Paul is excited because he's given his life to serving these Ephesians, and now they're actually beginning to show evidence. The Bible calls it fruit. They're starting to bear fruit that shows God is at work inside of them. You know, one of the great truths about coming to know Jesus is you can only tell when someone's walking with Jesus by the fruit that is in their life. I used to worry all the time about getting the prayer just right at the end of a service. How can we make sure that if we invite someone to receive Jesus, they really do that? And you realize that the only way you really know if someone is saved is if they're bearing fruit. Jesus says, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. It's just the byproduct of being with Jesus. You bear fruit. And so when Paul hears they're bearing fruit, he is excited, he's thrilled, and he he notices that they're bearing two kinds of fruit. They're first bearing faith. And we could spend months talking about faith, but suffice it to say that faith is the only way you can even come to know Jesus. Scripture says it's the only way you can please God. It's the only way you can receive anything from God. It's the only way you receive God's blessings. It's through faith, faith, faith. Paul says, I've heard of your faith. And then he says, I've heard of your love for all the saints. Your love for all the saints. And this is an incredibly neglected fruit a lot in the modern church. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The one another in that verse is other believers. The one another is other believers. Jesus' model for the church isn't first and foremost that people would look at how we love people who aren't believers. That's not his first plan. Jesus' first intent for the church is that people would look on at how we love each other as a family. That's the great testimony of the church, that if someone walked in the room today, they would say, this is a strange mix of people right here. What are they doing here? And we have one thing in common, Jesus Christ. The testimony of the church is that we love each other in a way that doesn't make sense to the outside world. They look on And they say, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that family. God's heart for the believer is always that we make sure that we take care of those in the family first. And I don't mean it from a selfish perspective, but here's what I mean. Imagine if you have a mom and dad, and you work hard, and your mom and dad have come on hard times. They're living in welfare housing. They can barely make ends meet. And you're doing pretty well. 
And every week, you give as much of your income as possible to the poor, not a penny to your mom and dad. Sooner or later, when somebody finds out about that, I'm going to say that your witness and testimony of all your good works is going to suffer a little bit because they're going to say, you didn't, you didn't even take care of your own family first. You didn't take care of them. And so for those of us in the church, we want to love those outside the church, but we always want to make sure that our first love goes to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that we build the kind of family people want to be a part of that love each other in an uncommon way. Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And so Paul says, I've heard of your faith. I've heard of your love for the saints, and I'm thankful for it. Paul models the heart of ministry here. The heart of ministry for Paul is not, I need you guys to really build the biggest building you can as fast as possible. Paul doesn't say, I need you guys to be distributing more of my cassette tapes so that my ministry can grow. Paul doesn't say, uh, I need you guys to see if you can set up a TV show for me in your city so that we can build this thing. What Paul wants is for believers to get it. He wants them to get it. It says in scripture, Paul was shipwrecked. He was beaten within an inch of his life. He was whipped. He almost died multiple times. And what he wanted more than anything else was for all that to not be in vain. He wanted other believers to get it and understand what they really had in Jesus Christ. And what was the result of this thankfulness in Paul? It's very interesting, very interesting, because upon hearing that the Ephesians are doing well in these two areas, Paul tells us in verse 16 that it made him want to pray for them. Verse 16, Paul said that he would not cease to give thanks for them making mention of them in his prayers. Have you noticed that for us, we tend to pray for people when they're in trouble, when things are going wrong? Paul hears they're doing well, and it makes him want to pray for them. You might have heard of of the old uh, medical practice in ancient China where they didn't pay a doctor to make them better. They paid a doctor an annual stipend to keep them healthy. And the idea is, I die, there's no more money for you. And what they would do is they would tell the doctor, if any of your patients die, you have to hang a lantern outside of your office for a year. And so if you were going through the village, you're looking for a doctor, and you saw a doctor's office that was lit up like a disco, you'd keep walking. That's what you do. But what they valued was the idea of avoiding illness by maintaining health and not always reacting to sickness. And this is what Paul is modeling for us here. He's modeling the truth that Satan isn't really that concerned about the people whose lives are a complete disaster. They're kind of taking care of themselves. And this this is just a cold, hard truth. You have someone whose life is falling apart and they're having no impact on anybody in any way for the kingdom of God. Satan says, man, this is going beautifully. Don't have to worry about them. Who is Satan interested in? Who is he saving his heavy artillery for? He's saving it for people who are being effective for the kingdom of God. That's who Satan really wants, and that's who he's going after hard. And those are the people that need our prayers, probably even more. Have you ever wondered why it seems in the Christian world like clockwork, great leaders who love God and have great ministries fall, have epic moral failures all the time? 
Some of the reason is simply that Satan is doing everything he can to lead them into temptation. He's doing everything he can to destroy the work that God is doing through that person. Everything that he can. And sometimes I wonder if there are people that we could have propped up with our prayers. But we simply said, I don't need to pray for them. They're doing well. But Paul models here the idea, pray for those who are doing well. Pray for those who are having an effect for the kingdom of God, who are letting the gospel go forward in power. Pray for those people. Satan doesn't like what's going on. So let's remember to pray for those who are doing well. Verse 16 also tells us that Paul prayed without ceasing. He said, I do not cease to give thanks for you, which means it was continuous. And the idea in the original Greek of without ceasing is almost like a tickle in the throat. I don't know if you've ever had that horrible experience where there's just that thing in your throat you just can't get out and it's just I did that demonstration for you like you didn't all know what I was talking about before I did it. But now you really understand, right? You're welcome. So the idea is a tickle in the throat like that. It's just all the time it's happening. And Paul's idea of praying continuously is just that it's continuous throughout the day. It's like a constant tickle in the throat that just comes back. He interacts with somebody, he prays for them after the interaction. He's probably praying, going into every interaction he has. He's always thinking about somebody. In our version of our life, Paul would be the guy who turns off the car radio and says, man, I got 30 minutes to pray right now. Let me pray. Paul is the guy who's praying when he's walking into Starbucks, praying when he's walking out, when he's in the line, just all the time. If he's not talking to somebody, he's praying. That's what Paul is doing, praying without ceasing. And here's what we see Paul model for us as well. We move into the second part of his prayer. Paul moves into intercession. And intercession is very simply praying on another's behalf. It's praying for them, It's petitioning God for them. Starting in verse 17, this is what Paul says. He says, this is my prayer, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Don't you love the way that Paul writes? It's just epic. Paul's overarching prayer, if you didn't pick up on it, is that the Ephesians would receive a greater revelation of Jesus. A greater revelation of Jesus. If we had a greater revelation of Jesus, if we had a greater revelation of Jesus, we would never worry. There would be no anxiety in any believer. There'd be no fear in any believer. No worry at all. If we just had a revelation of who's listening when we pray, do we understand that the God of the universe, unlimited resources, unlimited power, 
We have his ear when we pray. He is listening. If we could understand that, I think we'd pray without ceasing too. I really do. Notice in verse 17, Paul tells us that revelation and wisdom are found in the knowledge of him. Wisdom and revelation are found in the knowledge of him. It's profoundly simple and it's simply profound. That him is Jesus. If you desire to have wisdom and understanding in life, you will only truly find it in Jesus. There's only one Ephesians. There's only one Genesis. There's only one Hebrews. But there are four Gospels. There are four books on the life of Jesus. Do you think God might be trying to tell us something? I think you might be trying to say this is really, really, really important. This is what everything before and everything after is pointing to. Jesus Christ. God wants us to get that. And so if you want to have wisdom and knowledge in Christ, I would encourage you, make sure in your daily time in God's word, you get some of Jesus in there. You can be doing an in-depth study through Genesis or Revelation, but get something in there related to Jesus because it's all about him. With my kids, our one goal when it comes to Scripture, our one goal is that our kids become passionately in love with Jesus. That's it. That's what we want. We want to reveal Jesus to, him, to them as wonderful, as this incredible person. Help them to understand who he is. So by all means, study in depth something else, but make sure you get Jesus in there somewhere so that you can walk daily in wisdom and understanding and revelation. In verse 18, Paul prays, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. This is Paul's prayer, that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. So often we, we pray for the symptom, but not the sickness. I think we've all prayed ourselves and been in prayer situations where we're praying, God, get Steve off drugs. God, help Greg and Dorinda's marriage. God, do something here. Break that addiction. We deal with the fruit. Paul deals with the root. He gets right down to it, and he gives us a lesson in what a mature Christian prays like. Paul's prayer is, Lord, let them know you. Let them know you. Only true wisdom is found in you, and true wisdom is what they really need. It's what they really need. How often in, in these interactions we're talking about, you're trying to get through to somebody, they just can't receive it. When you walk away and talk to God about them, God will inevitably remind you and me that sometimes people are just blind. They need their eyes opened by Jesus. They need their eyes opened. And you can draw infographics. You can get out the flannel graph and tell them a whole story. You can have the best illustration in the world. You can find a Christian movie that's going to make them cry and they won't get it if their eyes haven't been opened by the Holy Spirit. And this is Paul's prayer. This is the mature prayer. God, open their eyes. And how does that happen? How does that happen? It happens through prayer. It happens through prayer, through intercession. 
If there's people you know that need Jesus, man, pray that God would open their eyes. Pray on their behalf that God would open their eyes. Paul's prayer is mature because he understands the big picture truth. It sounds harsh, but it's true. If they're freed from their addiction, they don't know Jesus. It doesn't mean anything in terms of the big picture. And we can say, yeah, but yeah, but they'll be healthy. This is eternity, and, and this is this life. And so Paul's prayer is a big picture prayer. He's saying, God, the solution I want to see for this person is not a change in their behavior so that they become a good person. The change I'm praying for is that they would know you, that they would see you, and then all the behaviors will change as a result of them knowing you when they've had their eyes opened. Paul continues, and in verse 18, we also see this phrase, the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The hope of his calling is simply our eternal destiny. It's heaven. Paul says, I wish you'd understand where we're going. We're going to heaven. We're going to heaven. Jesus is our inheritance. We are his inheritance. We spoke about that last week, that we are his treasure, we are his inheritance, and he is gonna satisfy every need, every longing, every desire we've ever had. Paul says, I wish that you would understand that and grasp that. Now check this out in verse 19 and 20. This is what Paul is praying that the Ephesians would know and understand. And verse 20 marks the start of the the third part of Paul's prayer, a focus on the power of God. Paul says, I wish that you would understand what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. I don't think I'll ever get over this addiction. I don't think I'll ever really be able to get control of my thoughts. I don't think I'll ever be able to move on from this depression. I don't think I'll ever be able to let that go and forgive that person. I just don't know. Paul doesn't pray, God, give them more power. Paul prays, God, help them to understand the power that they already have. The power that they already have in Christ. Paul says it is literally the same power inside of us that raised Christ from the grave. The power that was great enough and strong enough to do that is at work in us and is in us through the Holy Spirit. We already have it. It's already inside of us. What we need is for Jesus to open our eyes and help us understand the power that we already have in Jesus Christ. Whatever the situation is, whatever the problem is, God is greater. God is greater. And there is incredible power. Instead of telling God how big your problems are, tell your problems how big your God is. And watch what happens as you begin to fill your mind with the reminder that Jesus Christ is in me. Jesus Christ is in me. And I've seen enough to know what I'm dealing with is not too much for him to handle. 
if he can die and come back to life, he can handle this. There's enough power here to make this happen. Paul prays that they'd understand the power that he already has. Let's keep reading. Paul says, and seated him, Jesus, at his right hand, the Father's right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Principality and power and might and dominion simply refers to all of the different spiritual realms, all of the different spiritual beings, angels, demons, everything. Paul is saying, listen, Jesus rules over them all. All of them, 100%, without exception. There is nothing we will ever experience in this life, nothing that Jesus Christ does not have authority over. Nothing. There is nothing we will ever encounter in our life and Jesus is gonna be like, this is new to me. I don't have a plan. I didn't see this coming. There is nothing, nothing in all existence that Jesus Christ does not have authority over. There is nothing that won't get on its knees before Jesus. Nothing, without exception. Let me hear somebody say amen to that. Come on, all right. Paul goes on and says, let me give you some perspective. And he put, this is verse 22, all things under his feet. All things under his feet. Is something in life drowning you? Is something pulling you under? The disciples were literally in a situation one time when they were being pulled under. They had gone on a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and they got out to the middle, and there's a giant storm. Waves are rolling, thundering down on them. Bad situation, getting worse every second. The waves are literally over their heads. It's a bad deal. And this is when Jesus shows up. And what's Jesus doing when he shows up? He's walking on top of the waves. And so the very same situation that has you in over your head is under his feet. It's under his feet. It's all under his feet, no matter how it feels. And the thing that is over your head might be the very thing that Jesus uses to walk out and meet you in the middle of your storm. Paul shifts gears here and begins to talk about the church Speaking of Jesus, Paul says, the Father gave him to be head over all things to the church. Verse 23, which is his body, Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus says the church is the expression of him on the earth. The church is his body. The church is how people see Jesus when they haven't had their eyes opened yet. There's a lot to live up to. It's a lot to live up to. But let me ask you, can you imagine going up to someone and saying, listen, I like you, but your body? But I really like you. I really like you. Or can you imagine saying, listen, I I love you, but your bride? You could do better. You could do better. 
Now, this is a very, very popular topic in our culture and our society, and it's not even a new argument. Gandhi was the one who said, I love Jesus, I don't like Christians. And, and as Christians, it's very, very easy for us to apologize and say, oh, I'm sorry, we're getting it all wrong. And the more you live, the more you realize that we're never going to get it right. We're never going to get it right. And the truth is, if somebody is looking to the church, expecting us to be exactly like Jesus, they're never going to find Jesus. What the church is about is saying we're very imperfect people who have realized that we are loved by a perfect God. And when we remember that, we're able to come together and overlook some of each other's imperfections because Jesus has forgiven us all of ours. And that's the testimony of the church. Not that we've got it right. The testimony of the church is that we found forgiveness. And so the starting point of our faith is honestly a more humble starting point than any other faith has. We don't, there's no ladder to climb in our faith. There's a ladder to climb down in our faith. The more you become like Jesus, the more of a servant you become. It's the complete opposite of every other faith. You don't become a better person by becoming more enlightened. It doesn't make you better than anybody. The more you know Jesus, the more equipped you are to love other people, and the more you realize how much you need him. Very, very different deal. But let me simply say this for us. We can't control how people outside perceive what we do. But for us, remember, if you love Jesus, you'll love his church. If you love Jesus, you'll love his church. You might not think much of it, but Jesus died for it. Jesus loves his church. Loves his church. And yeah, it's screwed up, but there's always room for one more. Always room for one more. Somebody said it very well one time. They said, if you find the perfect church, don't go, because you'll screw it up. <laughs> That's true. It's 100% true. You will. But if you love Jesus, you will love his church. Last week we spoke about how, how Jesus sees us, how Jesus sees his church. And Jesus doesn't see us with all our flaws. Jesus sees us through what he's done for us. He's died for us. He's died so that his blood could pay for our sin and make us beautiful. And when he looks at us, that's how he sees us. He sees us as beautiful right now. He sees us as sinless right now. That's how the Father sees us. He sees us as a perfect match for him. He says, yeah, you're a logical match for me. You're beautiful, you're holy. You're without sin, just like me. You're a perfect match for me. But when we, when we love each other like Jesus has loved us, I think the church becomes a very, very beautiful place. It really does. When we love each other the way that Jesus has loved us, man, the church becomes beautiful, and I think people look on and they say, yeah, I'd, I'd like to be a part of that. I'd like to be a part of that. And that's the great testimony of the church. If you love Jesus, you will love his church.